Please be seated. Thank you. And turn to Colossians 1 in your bulletins or Bibles. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. This week I heard about a 12-year-old boy in Wales uh, who got to meet his hero. Uh, he adored this rugby player, and uh, this rugby player was a great star in, in Wales. And so this boy plastered his bedroom walls with newspaper clippings of the rugby player's uh, exploits and photos of, of this athlete. And uh, remarkably, um, not long after that, this boy actually got to, to meet his hero. He got to meet his, his, uh, this rugby player personally. And not only that, he got to become friends with him and, in fact, would regularly go fishing with him as well. And the more that he got to know his hero, this rugby player, he, he got to know sort of what was behind the newspaper clippings, and what was behind the glittering image that had so enchanted him. And what he found was very, very disappointing. Looking back as an adult, he said that the nearer I got, the smaller he became. The closer I got to this hero that I had so adored, the smaller he became. Now, we might not plaster our bedroom walls with rugby stars, um, but we're still in the same predicament as this 12-year-old boy. Um, we put our hopes in things that at first seem like they will complete us, but the closer we get, the more disappointed we become. The Anglican uh, Church Catechism sums it up like this, quote, I am tempted to trust in myself possessions, relationships, and success, believing that they will give me happiness, security, and meaning. I am also tempted to believe superstitions and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. We're all tempted. We all have, metaphorically speaking, bedroom walls that we plaster newspaper clippings with, and we're all bound for disappointment if we follow it. Now, not long after this um, sad teenager met his hero and was disappointed, he began to explore the claims of Jesus Christ. And he had the opposite experience. He said that I have walked with Jesus for 35 years now, speaking as an adult. And in that time, I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I have gotten to know him better and the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. The closer I get to Jesus, the bigger he becomes. Ah, it's double-sided. <laughs> it's a whole lot better than page two not being there at all. Okay. So, do you want to be perpetually disappointed in life? Do you want that for your life? Chasing after mirages? Maybe this one will do it. Maybe that one will do it. 
there's a way out. And this message is about the way out. Our reading from Colossians describes Jesus Christ as one who becomes bigger the closer we get. The more we know of him, the more interesting he becomes, the more brilliant and the more compelling. The more we get of him, the more we want of him. Why is this? You ever wonder why that is? Why that is that you get closer to Jesus, closer to his gospel, closer to his cross, closer to his life, it becomes more interesting and brilliant and compelling. Why does Jesus satisfy the human heart without disappointing us? Why is he the greatest treasure we could ever possess? Colossians answers that question, and the first reason that it gives us is so basic and so fundamental that we might completely miss it altogether. And the reason is this, the first reason that Paul gives us is that Jesus Christ created all things. Jesus Christ created all things. Listen to these important words from the Apostle Paul about how Jesus relates with creation. Verse 15 says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let's unpack this for a moment. I'm going to ask you to track with me for a minute, and it's going to involve your brain power, and it's worth it. So verse 15 makes two important claims about Jesus that interlock with one another. The first is this, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That means that Jesus perfectly represents God. Jesus is just the right person to deliver the Father's blessing. Jesus is just the right person to display the Father's splendor. He is just the right person to shine the Father's light. He is just the right person to show the Father's power perfectly, without any spot, without any distraction. If you want the full experience of the Father's goodness and holiness and power, look at Jesus. Verse 19 says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The fullness of God. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. Now, the key question here is where? Where? Where does that image go? An image needs a place to be broadcast, as it were. It needs an audience to see it. And so where is this radiance and blessing and holiness and light shining and radiating? Where is it going out? And the second half of verse 15 tells us um, where it says that he, Jesus, is the firstborn, meaning the highest rank of all creation. That's where the image is going. Um, it goes out in glory to creation, which includes both heaven and earth, where we live. The seen and unseen parts of God's created order is where the image of God, perfectly represented in Jesus, is shining in power and love and holiness and glory. That's the claim of verse 15. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of an invisible God to creation, where, in fact, he holds the highest rank. Tracking? That's a lot of status. That is a very important position to hold. Perfect image of God. Highest rank in all creation. Where does he get that right? 
That is an audacious claim. Where does he get that? Why does Paul say that? And verse 16 tells us why he can be both of those things. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So Jesus Christ perfectly represents God to creation. He holds the highest rank within creation. Why? Because he brought creation into being. Jesus Christ created all things, seen or unseen, from stars to starfish, people, angels, planets, rivers, powers, rulers, the earth, the sky, the sea. They came into existence by his hands, and so they were also created for him. So the father loved the son to the degree that he gave creation to Jesus as a gift. The beating heart of creation, my friends, is Jesus Christ. If you want to know the true purpose of a bird or a springtime bud or a baby girl or bread and wine for that matter, look at Jesus Christ. In the words of theologian Michael Reeves, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father, and creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. All right? I know it's hard to see, but you look outside these windows. Can you see at any part of the sky? All right? Can you at least see the reflection of the sun? All right, that was created by and for Jesus Christ. Okay, now look around at the people assembled here, these brothers and sisters. Okay, look around. You see some people? If you're at home, if there's people with you, look them in the eye without getting weird. Because they were created by and for Jesus Christ. The Father was delighted to include them in the love that he has for his Son. Take a deep breath. Just take the deepest breath you can, all right? And taste the luxurious air of this earth. That breath is a gift from Jesus Christ who loves you and loves you being a part of his world. The great Reformation leader Martin Luther said this, now if I believe in God's son and remember that he became man, all creatures will appear a hundred times more beautiful to me than before. Then I will properly appreciate the sun, the moon, the stars, trees, apples, as I reflect that he is Lord over all things. God writes the gospel, not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. Now here's the tricky part. How do we have a proper respect for creation without fearing it? Because, you know, there's a reason Paul mentions all these words in verse 16. Verse 16, thrones, dominions, authorities, rulers. Um, he wants to put them in their proper place under Christ. Uh, because they were feared in the ancient world. They were feared by early Christians. Um, 
these uh, Christians feared high-ranking magistrates, high-ranking spiritual beings, and they desperately wanted to stay in the good graces of these thrones and dominions and authorities. And so Paul, in part, wrote the book of Colossians to break the spell, break the spell of the threat of these powers in creation. And, And we have our own version of this. We have things in creation that we fear. Um, whom do we fear? Who, in whom do we hope? For some of us, it's just certain kinds of people that we are afraid of. It's certain types of men. It's certain types of women. It's people who frighten us, beckon us, promise us life, or threaten us demise. They hold something in their hands that we want or crave, or fear. Celebrities, authorities, committees, guilds, public opinion, public officials, admissions committees, those with education, power, money, beauty, talent, clout. We crave their thumbs up. We fear their thumbs down. Now, for other people, for others of us, We fear other things in creation. We fear certain situations in creation. Uh, Situations we desire or are afraid of, like getting sued or getting acquitted, getting sick or staying healthy, living or dying, making it big or going bust. Others of us are drawn to and afraid of the supernatural, demons, spiritual powers, ancestral curses, horoscopes, and the like. And perhaps like the Colossians, we are overawed by the powers of this earth. Some of us fear governments or corporations or gangs because they have the power to harm us or to help us. Perhaps we fear the collapse of governments, the collapse of democracy, the collapse of alliances, and the chaos that would result from such an occasion. Now, for what it's worth, the Roman Empire did not like the author of Colossians. They came down very hard on him. He was writing this letter. He was writing these words from the floor of a Roman prison. He got on the wrong side of the authorities, and they threw him in prison with the rats and the stink and the other criminals. And yet he is able to write about the Lord over all of creation, over all of the magistrates, over all of the governments, that he was not afraid of them anymore. Why? Because Christ had broken the spell for him, and he was free, and he was rejoicing, and he was worshiping. He was not obsessing over governments and empire and obsessing over the soldiers who mistreated him and obsessing over getting the good graces of people who had the power, but he knew that there was one who created all of the powers. They owed their existence to him. And so Paul worshiped him and wanted the Colossians to as well. There's a fearlessness, a fearlessness that we can have when we see Jesus rightly enthroned as the one who created all things. When we worship him as such, we no longer... uh, Fear those who may have the power to temporarily harm us or temporarily bless us or charm us. The hopes and fears, the carrots and sticks, the smoke and mirrors of this world can't manipulate us anymore. 
Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. This whole world comes together in him and is held together by him. He is the logic. The story of Jesus is the logic of our world and of our lives and the meaning that holds everything together. Nothing is autonomous. Now consider the director of um, a film in the process of filmmaking. Um, If you are the director of a film, you provide creative vision to the filmmaking. You direct all of the actors and all of the crew to bring that vision to life. Now let's say that one of the actors did not like the creative vision that the director was bringing. And while the director was off in a meeting somewhere, the actor's like, you know what? I'm gonna go with my own vision because it's better. And maybe one of the assistant directors is like, yeah, I like your vision better. Let's go with that vision. And so they begin to film, um, you know, like uh, their own version of what the film should be. Um, Now, the problem is that uh, when the director comes on the set and says, cut, it shall be cut. Because the whole crew is there for the support of the director, and all the actors are there at the pleasure of the director, and when the director says, you're cut, you're cut from the project. Because in the director, the creative vision all holds together. Now, Jesus Christ is like the director of creation. Some of the cast and crew love his creative vision, cooperate with it, and some do not. Some have definitely gone off script of what Jesus wanted the world to be. But nevertheless, everybody owes their existence to Jesus Christ. And when he comes on the scene, there's no question about who outranks whom. If you read the biographies of Jesus, you will see this. Mark chapter two, verses 21, describes a scene in which Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And there's a man who is... um, He's possessed by a demon. There's a demon who has uh, control over this man's mind and mouth. And as Jesus is teaching, this demon manifests itself, and he says to him, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon knew. Here's the creator. I owe my existence to him. I may have gone off script, but he's walked on the scene and he's making things right. And with a word, Jesus commands the demon to leave the man and there's no struggle. The demon leaves immediately. He can't help it. He he obeyed and then the man was free. This is Jesus making things right. Do you also want to be free? Do you want out of the trap of idolatry and fear? Look up at the Lord who created all things. He's over everything that we could fear in this life. If you get closer to him, you'll see him get bigger. And he will show you the holiness and love of God firsthand. Worship him only. Fear him only. And let him make you fearless. Fearless before everything else that he's created. Jesus Christ created all things. That's not all. Jesus Christ, secondly, also rules over a new creation. This is the second reason why Jesus gets bigger the closer we get. Jesus Christ rules over a new creation. Christ is Lord over creation, 
But as you probably have been thinking, creation is very broken, isn't it? Creation's very, very broken. Our world is broken. We are broken. Our systems are broken. The curse of death looms over us. We're in creation, yet every single one of us in this room and every single one of us joining via live stream will die one day. And what then? What's more, the stain of sin infects everything we touch. As glorious as the world is, it constantly disappoints us. It constantly breaks and stops working. So what now? So this is the second feature of Jesus Christ, which is so important. He's not just the source of creation. He's the source of new creation. He's the source of new creation. Look with me at verse 18. Colossians 1.18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, better translated, the firstborn from among the dead ones, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so verse 18 requires us to slow down and focus again. So track with me. Jesus is the head of the church. Well, who's the church? The church are the people who have been called out of sin and death transferred from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. He's the head of the church. He's leading them somewhere. He's leading us somewhere. Um, So where is he leading us? Well, um, it says the firstborn from among the dead, the beginning. Um, Jesus went first into a death and resurrection journey. He went into death, which all of us will go, but he went into resurrection where some of us can go. His body was resurrected, he went into the glory of God, and he started a new creation. His body was the first piece, the first fruits of a new creation. Um, A new creation that will include everyone who, who trusts him and follows him. A new creation which will be a new city, a new heavens, a new earth, a new civilization that will never end. Jesus is the Lord and the head of new creation. He goes first, and we will follow. Now, the result of that is he is preeminent over all things. Um, He not only rules over creation, he rules in his highest rank in new creation. And you might be thinking, you know, that sounds kind of like, I don't know, egotistical to me. Like, the whole point of everything is that Jesus might rank first. Um, And here's something that might be able to answer that question and illustrate this point. Steve Sample was the president of the University of Southern California for a number of years, a very successful president. And early in his career, before he was president, an older colleague pulled him aside, one of his fellow engineering professors. And his colleague saw that his star was rising and that he had, you know, like some advice to give this young guy. And he said to Mr. Sample, I've been a careful observer of ambitious men all my life, And for what it's worth, here's something that I've learned. Many men want to be president, but very few want to do president. In other words, um, some people, most people want to be leader. They want the perks. They want the C-suite office. They want the higher pay. They want the recognition and the title. But very few have an ambition to actually do leader to do all the things that's required of a leader, finding a common purpose, working for unity around that common purpose, 
marshaling the resources necessary to complete that purpose, to be the chief problem solver, to be the non-anxious presence, to be the first one in and the last one out, to keep morale high and anxiety low, and on and on and on. Very few actually want to do that. In other words, they want the rank without the responsibility, right? It's human nature. Does Jesus want to just be the preeminent one, or does he want to do preeminence? Does he want to have the chief responsibility for everything being set right? And the record shows that Jesus wants this job. He wants to actually do the stuff of redemption. He already has the rank, but he wants more than that. He wants the responsibility. Or as N.T. Wright says, he was always the Lord by right, but then he became Lord in fact. In other words, Jesus' ambition was to be personally involved in making the world right and making us whole. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look, God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Jesus was pleased to dwell with us through his birth and his life. He was pleased to go to the cross and for his blood to be spilled there. He was pleased to become head of the church, though we are weak and suffering. He was pleased to reconcile and bring peace between God and people. He was pleased to be personally involved in our healing and involved in our maturing, and he is pleased to be welcoming us personally into his new creation. Remember leprous man in Matthew 8, and he says like, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? I am willing. Be clean. I want to heal you. Be clean. Jesus was so very glad to do that for him. He is pleased not simply to be Lord by rank, but Lord in responsibility. I learned recently that every Orthodox icon that portrays the resurrection of Jesus, um, it actually shows him grabbing Adam and Eve by their wrists and yanking them out of hell and bringing them up into his kingdom. He's got them by the wrist because he's like, I'm in this with you. You're not going down there forever. I'm taking you with me into resurrection. And I'm right there as you walk into the pearly gates. I'm right there as you experience healing. I am right there as your sins are forgiven. I am right there because I'm not just Lord in theory. I am Lord for you and with you. Why does Jesus, in the long haul, in the end, satisfy us, not disappoint us like everything else that we look to? He created all things. We're made to be satisfied by him. And then he, he rules over all things. He rules over the good things, the resurrection, the redemption, the new creation. And he's very glad. So let us, let us not pity him for that. Let us not pity him for the cross. Let us not pity him for how involved he is in our life. Let us not pity him that he takes us by the wrist with his own nail-scarred wrists. He was glad to do that for us. He is glad to do that for us. What do you need him to do? Is there a new creation 
need that you have because he's so very glad to, to meet it. He is ambitious. He is ambitious to get into the weeds with you. Are you here? You've never known Jesus Christ? Well, he wants to reveal his glory to you. He would be glad to forgive your sin. He would be glad to uh, take away every curse of your life. Are you here and you are just uh, downcast? Are you just depressed because it's January and COVID's rising again and all this stuff and more lockdowns and you just feel like you just feel like you've got nothing to give? Boy, he would be so very glad to take you by the wrist and encourage you and help you through this time. Make it worth your glory and your good. Are you here? You need a healing. You've got something in the body or the soul or the heart that just needs Jesus' healing. He would be so very glad to put his arm around your shoulder and say, hey, you know what? I just love being the preeminent one who's like responsible for you getting better. Let me help you. Let me walk with you. Let's not pity Jesus that he has that job. He wants that job. He loves that job. And he's not going to quit until it's done. Amen? So there's one more reason that Jesus Christ never disappoints. And it's so important that we do not miss the exclamation point at the end of this text. Because it brings it all together. And... um, This final reason is so important that our series in Colossians is going to repeat again and again. It's going to come back to this point. Um, And so it's really important for us to get it now, and it's really important for us to think about it throughout the rest of the series. So please join us for the rest of the series. But for now, let's look at uh, the final few verses here, because they'll show us that Jesus Christ is enough to complete us. He's not just Lord of a creation, not just Lord of a new creation. He is enough and he is complete enough to complete us. Some of you are struggling to believe that. He is enough to complete you. He is. Um, have you ever been in the middle of a project that you thought would never end? A home renovation project, okay? A work project, a school project, school itself, okay? a fitness project, a nutrition project, an art project. You're in the middle of the mess of it, and you're like, when is this ever going to end? It's only getting worse. If it goes on too long, we can get weary and discouraged and quit and fire the contractor, stop showing up to the workouts, go back to our old habits. But So in verses 21 and 23, the Apostle Paul tells us about a project that Jesus Christ started and intends to complete. And he does not want us to give up just yet. Let's look at these verses. And you, plural, y'all, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting From the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a servant. So, what's the first part of the project that's done? 
What has Jesus already done for his people? In short, he's reconciled hostile enemies to himself and to his father. And there's a part of each one of us that is hostile, either passively or aggressively or both to the rule of Jesus Christ. There's a part of us that past, present, or future resists what he wants us to do, resists the way he wants the world to work, says, no, I don't like it, and I'm going to do it. I have different ideas, and I have a different way of living that is not in alignment with what he has asked of us. And so let's not, we're very nice people. You're a very nice person, I'm, I'm sure. But let's not kid ourselves that there's not a hostile part of us underneath the veneer of kindness and niceness. What Jesus did is that um, he reconciled his enemies. And most of the way the enemies get reconciled in this world are through their pain, right? There's a dominating empire and there's an enemy of that empire. Well, the empire is going to make you feel some pain until you get in line. That's how our world works often. But you think about what Jesus did, um, is, that, is that the verse, verses 21 and 22 tell us that he reconciled us through his death on the cross. It was through his pain, it was through his sacrifice that he reconciled enemies. Isn't that amazing? So it's not just forced. It's not, uh, it's not something that he, that he did uh, to dominate us. He did it to win us. He won our hearts through his own sacrifice. This is a huge victory that will reverberate throughout time and eternity. That is what Christ did. And this process that has been completed in Jesus' death has a future that is glorious. The end of verse 22 says that this was all in order to present you, again, plural, present all of us in Christ, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And this is a picture of us being complete. This is the completeness that we know we don't have yet. To stand blameless and without spot or defects before the Lord himself. And I want you to picture that day with me. Use your imagination to picture the day when your earthly life is behind you. It's fallen away from you like a leaf that's all crumpled away like chaff, like an old shell casing. It's behind you now. The life is over. You've lived it, and what's done is done. But now you're standing before the Lord. You find yourself standing in the throne room of heaven before the Father Almighty, who towers before you. The unseen God, now you see him. And he's surrounded by angels, countless angels, countless archangels, and saints. And these angelic creatures that have eyes and wings and surround him and there's lightning and there's rainbows and it's just incredibly beautiful and glorious and holy. This is the most awe-filled, beautiful sight you've ever beheld. The air is thick with holiness and light. And at some point you realize there is no way that I should be here. I do not belong here. Yet, I'm not being destroyed by all this intensity. And you look to your right, and there stands Jesus Christ. 
who walked with you your whole life, who, who knew you since the day you were conceived. And you see his wounds and you realize that's where all my sin went. And that's where I found my healing. And all reproaches against you, there's no accusation and there's no reproaches that can come against you in that moment. Because of him, he's standing there and he has completed a project that he, is, that he started way back when. And what's more, he's clothed you in holiness. He's clothed you in light. You are now the image of God that you were always intended to be. You are now free and accepted and unafraid and at rest. And that's the completed project. Do you want that? I do. And I want that for you. But again, on a cold January morning, with, with, uh, with, with seasonal affective disorder and COVID cases rising and, and just things going wrong and something in your personal life going sideways and we could give up, right, on the project. We could quit on Jesus and everything he's doing in this time right now. It just seems like a long way off. And so like that 12-year-old boy in Wales were tempted to cut out the newspaper clippings and fill our walls with Temporary heroes who offer us a more immediate completeness or a more immediate safety. So we shift from the hope of the gospel and we drift from Jesus Christ. We shift and we drift from Jesus and his plan and his glory and his church and his way. We take our eyes off Christ. And so there's a warning at the end of verse 23. At the end of all this glorious description of Jesus, there's a warning for us. There's an encouragement for us. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a servant. Christ will complete us. There's a conditional clause here, and there's a mystery in that conditionality. If we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting and drifting, not cowering and shape-shifting to the powers of this age, Paul calls us to continue in the faith. And faith here and in most of Scripture is not just an idea about what's true. Yeah, I believe that. It's an exercise of the will it's a deepening of your roots. It is, if you have a teacher that you have faith in, you exercise that faith by completing the assignments. If you have a coach that you have faith in, you exercise your faith in that coach by fulfilling the drills they ask you to do. If you don't do the drills, you don't really have faith in the coach or the teacher, etc. If we have faith in a beloved Savior, we exercise that faith by keeping our eyes fixed on him and following him wherever he leads, through the trials of life into new creation. Because he's got us by the wrist, and he's not going to let us go. Christ is enough to complete us. He created us, he reconciled us, and he's bringing us home, he's completing the process the more we worship him, the more we follow him, the bigger he becomes, the more satisfied we are with him. 
and the more disillusioned we become of all of the things this world can offer. So this epiphany, my friends, let us not take our eyes off Jesus Christ for a split second. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.